Hello, I'm Gracie Mae Bradley, and welcome to the Locating Legacies series, created by the Stuart Hall Foundation, produced by Pluto Press, and funded by Arts Council England. On the last episode of Locating Legacies, I spoke with Sita Balani about the intersections between the legacies of queer radicalism and contemporary class politics. In this, the final episode of the series, I have the pleasure and absolute joy of speaking with author and abolitionist Ruth Wilson-Gilmore. Ruthie Gilmore is the director of the Centre for Place, Culture and Politics and Professor of Geography in Earth and Environmental Sciences and American Studies at the City University of New York. Co-founder of many grassroots organisations, including the California Prison Moratorium Project, Critical Resistance and the Central California Environmental Justice Network, Ruthie is author of Golden Gulag, Prisons, Surplus, Crisis and Opposition in Globalising California, and abolition geography. Often dismissed or set aside as a US-based movement, how can we think about the histories, legacies and politics of abolition in the British context and beyond? Ruthie and I will map how local instances of political organising express themselves globally, as well as interrogating how past struggles express themselves in the present. So, Ruthie, it is such an honour to be in conversation with you and I could spend all of the time that we have together talking about how your work is absolutely foundational to my understanding of the world and to my practice and to that of so many of my comrades and co-conspirators, but that wouldn't be a particularly judicious use of time. But if I were to distill that admiration, you know, on a very personal level, a large part of my family is American. You know, I'm named for a character in an Alice Walker story. So just being able to make sense of my family and the America that my family has lived in for decades has been really important to me. But more broadly, you know, I came to abolition via the migrants' rights movement, working with torture survivors and people in immigration detention. And I really appreciate your economic analysis of what is happening in these carceral institutions. You know, this idea that institutions are taking human life and taking time and turning it into money. I really appreciate your emphasis that racism is about the production of vulnerability to premature death. And I think most importantly, your insistence that our task is a creative one. You talk about sustained creative aggression, uh, this idea that we're in the business of ensuring the presence of life-affirming practices and institutions. and. Just I find all of those contributions so grounding in the relentlessness of crisis after crisis. So just first of all, thank you so much. It's really good to be here with you today. Very good. Brilliant. We're going to talk about abolition in the UK and I want to bring you into conversation with some of the work that's happening here, some of which I know you'll be aware of anyway. But I want to start with abolition writ large which you have recently described as small C communism comprised of an accumulating cast of protagonists. Tell me more about why you define abolition this way. Sure, Um, and thank you. Thank you for that fantastic question to start our conversation. Well, one of the things that Stuart Hall wrote about maybe about 30 years ago, but that he'd been thinking about, I imagine, throughout most of his career as a thinker, writer, organizer, activist, teacher, was the what he called the global malallocation of material and symbolic resources. And of course, 
Stuart Hall was under no illusion that that malallocation was something that happened by chance or that it was an unintended consequence of an otherwise uh, relentlessly equalizing system of political economy, but rather how the world deepened in inequality and particularly how we have to put together the material dimensions of resources with the symbolic importance of how we think about how we go about seizing and sharing resources. So why small C communism? Well, it's pretty clear to me that a way to understand that global malallocation is through the relentless forces that change over time, but that can best be summed up by the forces of organized abandonment. And that many people in many parts of the planet are deep in experiencing this abandonment, whether it's the movement or removal of capitalist forms of production, whether it's the withdrawal of state or state-like guarantees of support, of protection or opportunity, whether it's through the willful neglect of the effects of climate crisis, such as sea level rise and desertification and other things that make places where people have made their lives and their livings not inhabitable anymore. So those are some examples of what I mean when I say organized abandonment rather than happenstance. And in order for organized abandonment to remain on some far side of invisible or visible partitions, whether they're borders, neighborhoods, groupings, statuses, and so forth, the forces of organized violence come into play over and over again. And one of the key ways that the forces of organized violence determine the uh, objects of their violent control, removal, uh, obliteration is through the process that we've come to call in recent years criminalization. So whether we're talking about people who have been engaged in land or building occupations to make it possible for themselves and their households and communities to have shelter and homes and community and life, or whether it's a story of long-distance migrants pushed for whatever reason from where they used to be toward places where there are more resources, that global malallocation results in resources piling up in some places while being drained elsewhere. Forces of organized violence use criminalization. In fact, they are legislated to um, use criminalization to control, contain, obliterate, and expel. Now, Many people who think about communism imagine that in a more narrow sense, communism focuses on the people who are engaged in what we might call the productive economy. Let's mm -hmm. say people who organize themselves into unions as against who are disorganized 
through the kinds of forces I was talking about and forced into long distance migration. But even in the case of unions, we see that uh, frequently workers who organize themselves, whether against a private, a public, or one of those in-between, you know, Quango employer forms, also are uh, faced with problems that we can associate with criminalization. Is this union action legal? Is it um, within the narrow bonds of what's acceptable for workers to do when they withdraw their labor from the workplace and so forth? So in looking at this big picture, which I've sketched out in broad brushes, um, we can see how criminalization uh, threads together the many different groupings who suffer from organized abandonment and the various forces of organized violence who keep that suffering away from where material and symbolic resources have accumulated. The small c communism then has to do with the fact that all of these protagonists who are working very diligently and against all different kinds of odds to make their livings and make their lives are indeed not the victims of history, but history's subjects. And that subjectivity is all important when we think about the forms of organization that people bring into being in order to pursue their liberation from organized abandonment and pursue their defense against organized violence. Okay, thank you. And I guess on that topic of liberation from organized abandonment, I wanted to talk a little bit about what abolition in the UK is looking like. And obviously there'll be numerous things that are happening that I don't include and you know, it is what it is. But we've seen really impressive mobilizations against immigration raids in Edinburgh, in Glasgow and London with mass participation stopping people from being deported. Uh, we've seen people obstructing deportation flights. There was a huge wave of protest here in 2020 as part of the global Black Lives Matter uprisings. And then again in 2021 as part of the Kill the Bill movement against the Policing, Crime, Sentencing and Courts Bill. And in the wake of those mass mobilisations, organisers have built more enduring and localised police monitoring groups at the neighbourhood level. As well as that kind of activism, there are some really interesting consciousness raising initiatives. So we have kind of reading groups like Books Against Borders, platforms like Abolitionist Futures. And then, of course, there are people campaigning for their loved ones. So the families of Chris Kaba and Oladeji Omashaw, for example, both black men killed by the police. And we have kids of colour campaigning for and really beautifully, creatively supporting 10 young men in Manchester who were jailed on conspiracy charges, essentially for text messages that they sent in a group chat. And unfortunately, those young men have been given custodial sentences, but kids of colour put out a call before the sentencing, essentially to say, community, can you help us show the judge that if these young men stay in the community, there are people who will support them? And there were 500 people who responded, right, with all kinds of offers, you know, to 
do one-to-one -one mentoring, to read job applications, to bring the boys to metalworking workshops that they run, right? The breadth of it was, it was beautiful. So my point is that the work is here and I, we could have started this conversation with all of the terrible things the government is doing, but I wanted to start it with the fact that the work is here. You obviously have decades of experience in abolitionist organizing, in particular against prisons in California. And you've said in the past that in that organizing, your aim has been to create an abolition geography that made it impossible for more prisons in California to be built. So I'm interested in what an abolition geography might look like. And I guess in our UK context, I'm interested in how we take power and coalitions that are built in a, a moment and turn them into enduring movement. Mm -hmm. Oh, this is such a great question and so many exciting things to think about. And so the first part of my answer is this. Gracie, you just described abolition geography in describing what's happening in the UK. People are making it and they make it in all of the different ways that you just laid out. There are various kinds of organizations, anywhere from the families uh, who are trying to fight for their loved ones to larger groups. There are uh, plans that pursue a particular goal, like kill the bill, whereas others are kind of trying things out. And that call that you just described to me of the youth of color saying, world, we can keep these 10 young people at home if you will tell us how we can do it. And 500 people responded with ideas, 500 people or, or people plus organizations. These are all examples of what I've been calling making abolition geography. There's a long meanwhile in what we're doing, which actually relates to the small c communism, that there's so much meanwhile that's vibrant and encouraging while at the same time difficult. So one of the features of some of the work that we did in California, especially in the 1990s and the first decade of this century, was to try to figure out, starting from a particular struggle, such as trying to stop a new prison, how people whose lives might be affected directly or indirectly by that prison are already organized to do something to improve their situation and then to work to connect or, you know, as Stuart Hall would have said, articulate one struggle with another and another and another. So in thinking about a prison as an example, it's not, it doesn't exhaust the field of possibilities. We think about a massive building that's also a city that has a very heavy environmental footprint that transforms land use from one thing to another, that includes and excludes certain kinds of workers and very much excludes certain kinds of workers and um, sets an agenda for the organization of life, both in the place where the prison is built and in the places where prisoners come from. You know, they have long lives. So an assumption is if a prison goes up, it will hold people for 30 years, which is to say almost two generations. Mm. Or as we put it, 
in organizing against a different prison, a youth facility that a county in California had been planning. We developed a, a way to get people to pay attention to us by saying the following. The county is planning a prison for children whose parents have not been born yet. Mm. This is a way to say, this is an entire way of life that arises when a prison's built. What else are people doing and what else should be done? So uh, to go back to an earlier example I started on, we did outreach in the area where the prison was scheduled to be built to farm worker unions, to the local water district, to faith communities always, there's always somebody, to environmental justice organizations, in particular, but not exclusively, people who worked in agriculture who had been exposed to pesticides and other harms, as well as people who lived in the region where agriculture was very um, intensively chemically managed, whose water and air were poisoned, whether or not they worked in agriculture. So we reached out to all of these different kinds of people and found that many of them had already existing organizations, some big, some small, some nascent, some of long duration, and talked with them about what this prison was going to do. We also, in talking with, for example, agricultural workers, um, raised the questions about long distance migration, about not being documented to work, which many people who work all the time are not, people uh, vulnerable to deportation, and which comes in the US context, as well as the UK context, uh, with a very heavy dose of criminalization, no matter what. And so we formed a very sturdy foundation for the work that we were doing. And we did it. It was not easy, but why would we imagine it would be easy? But we, we did things like we, we put together a lawsuit on behalf of an endangered species that wasn't a human. And we, uh, at the same time, uh, in doing all this outreach, uh, figured out how to hold a small conference in which people from the places where prisoners were likely to come from would come and sit and talk with people from the place where the prison was scheduled to be built to work out, work through, and get rid of some of the mutual suspicions and antagonisms that had divided what could be, you know, pretty easily understood in the abstract as a single class, right? As a single class of vulnerable people. We did all of those things and, you know, approached, you know, newspaper editorial boards and you name it. If it could be done, it was done. Artists helped us make uh, films and other visual material. People who taught in elementary and secondary school uh, put together uh, an organization called Education Not Incarceration and developed a curriculum that would be appropriate for all grade levels. And then children became sort of part of the lobbying force that would go to the state capital, to the legislature, to demand that 
resources be put to education, not to locking people up. So these, all of these ways produced, at least provisionally, a consciousness shared by many people who otherwise would never have known about one another across the vast and really differentiated territory that's California. So we did that. Although we did not win that particular fight, that particular prison actually was built, we did change common sense so profoundly, and it took a long time again to do that, that when that prison opened, the person who was the head of the prison service said, this will probably be the last prison we open in this state, right? And that wasn't because he thought, oh, we're done, because all of their data that they were constantly refining and massaging showed that their projections for prison needs were nowhere near fulfilled, like nowhere near exhausted. They plan to build at least 10 more at the time of this fight. And I'll tell you today, 22 or 23 years after we started that campaign, the state of California has announced that it's closing prisons. They've announced one complete shutdown and several other partial shutdowns. And in case people are wondering, no, we have not abandoned people in prison to more and more dire overcrowding. There are fewer people in prison because we worked on that front as well. Mm-hmm. So all of these things, all of these things. And I want to add something because I've been talking a little bit earlier about unions and people organized as unions, that we worked as well very intensely with people who are members of trade unions who work for the state of California, some of whom work in the prison system, not the guards. They don't want anything to do with us, and we didn't really want anything to do with them, but the teachers and nurses and locksmiths and others who could understand from their own experience as well as from the analysis we helped to develop that while a guard requires somebody sitting in a cage to do their job, A nurse does not, Mm. a teacher does not, a locksmith does not. None of them require a human in a cage other than the guard. And so they could see that the sort of work they imagined they were signing up to do when they set out to become teachers or set out to become nurses or even set out to become locksmiths, to be honest, um, could be something they did that would make communities healthier, happier, you know, wiser, all of the things that their work might contribute toward. Mm. And I think that that's a really important reminder, A, because obviously we're in the middle of loads of trade union militancy in the UK, kind of never seen before in my lifetime, but also because there are so many specific policies here, you know, prevent gangs policing policies, migrant surveillance policies, all of which are increasingly co-opting the nurses, the locksmiths, the teachers, and so on. And there's really fertile ground there for working with them to kind of reclaim what they think their profession should be. And I guess just on that point around changing common sense, 
I wanted to bring you into conversation with a great book that's just been published here, I'll wave it at you, called Abolition Revolution. Um, and it's by Avia Sarah Day and Shanice Octavia McBean, and they are two feminist abolitionist organizers with Sisters Uncut and Hackney Copwatch. And the book concludes with a, what they call a symposium between a small group of UK-based organisers on the broad theme of abolition in the UK. So I thought we could riff with that a bit. And one of the participants, Dr Adam Elliott Cooper, sounds a note of caution. Kind of, He says, it's really important that we make sure that abolition is not co-opted by social democrats. You know, that in calling for the defunding of the police and resourcing of what we need for human flourishing, we don't allow abolition to become understood as a call for us to go back to the welfare state of the 1960s. So I'm interested in your thoughts on co-optation and what advice you would give for navigating that dynamic. Mm -hmm. That's yet another wonderful question. And I want to say, I need to shout out to the world that the book that you just waved at me is one that I was invited to, to write a few words of a forward for and I just didn't have the time and I'm so distressed to this day that I couldn't you know stick my name in that book <laughs> and share its glory because it's a wonderful wonderful thing and I'm really grateful to the comrades who put it together so let's let's go to Adam Elliott Cooper's uh, caution and Adam himself Dr. Elliott Cooper I should say um, has written a fantastic book uh, that came out not very long ago from Manchester University Press. And his caution is a good one. It's a key caution that we should take seriously with the right um, awareness of the things that we need as well as the things that we don't want. So, so many features of welfareism would be welcomed by many communities. And they wouldn't say, what an imposition, what an interruption in my life. People would be glad if schools were fully funded or if social housing were available at the rate that it was before you know, the Thatcher era. So thinking of those features without thinking of the actual structure of the welfare state as one that included by excluding are some you know, considerations. That, that we should share and really put our minds to. So I imagine, and I imagine Adam would probably agree with me, that the question is rather how to build from what is what we need. And so the co-optation that is certainly all around us all the time seems to take two trajectories, at least in the US, and I'll be really interested to hear what you think, Gracie, about the UK. The first is a trajectory that I've started to call phobolition, like false abolition. There's a lot of phobolition, and people go, I'm an abolitionist. And then they say, and in the name of abolition, we need to build a jail that's nice for women yep. and gender expansive people. That's abolition. So, no. uh, so that's one line of concern that threads through anything from the example I just gave, let's have better um, lockups for you know, certain designated groupings, whether young people or women or gender expansive people or what have you. And the other is 
again, to follow that thread, goes through the various forces um, associated with um, social well-being and the social welfare state. And, you know, I read The Guardian every day. It's just a way for me to have a little glimpse into what's happening there in the UK. And um, I see so rife throughout its pages examples where if somebody, some child, some woman, some vulnerable person has been neglected or abandoned or is under threat, the forces of criminalization are there allegedly to resolve the problem. And it's like, no, that's not what the, the problem is. They were abandoned, not who should be punished for it. And so the sort of aggrandizement of the police function through all of the agencies of the state let's say all of the welfare agencies of the state as they currently exist is part of the problem that we're addressing and i'll just repeat myself again the problem of using criminalization as an all-purpose approach to identifying and then resolving social problems and indeed there's there's another threat or form of co-optation it's kind of really creepy different from volition, but I think related to it. And that is uh, in the United States and perhaps there in the UK as well, a call for what I've come to name police state socialism. And in police state socialism, what people who present themselves as the concerned and analytically rigorous left say is, oh, there really is a problem with crime. And Abolitionists don't really care about black people, about women, about migrants, da, 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 because if we did, we would recognize that crime is the problem for which policing is the solution. So these people, again in the United States, have been calling for a huge increase in the number of police in the U.S. and somehow uh, have deluded themselves into thinking that if there were more police, like a half a million more police, that this huge increase in the forces of social control and the forces of organized violence would open the way for socialism for everybody else. Mm -hmm. Like, and somehow, everybody somehow, not under the iron fist of the police, would be able to enjoy the protections from calamity and opportunities for advancement that at least the social welfare state, if not socialism uh, itself, is uh, supposed to provide. So this, I think, is where we're at. One, false abolition, but also this putative, hard-nosed socialism that is ready to start by excluding and abandoning in order to reach some kind of capacity for well-being for those who remain. I mean, I think I would definitely agree with that analysis. I mean, I I guess I'm not sure that actually we're even that close to phobolition <laughs> in you know, in certain in certain spheres in in the UK, if I'm if I'm really honest, um, you know, I yeah, I did once have a boss who was like, you know, I'm a prison abolitionist, but you know, so it's in some in some of those spaces. But I think so. Yes, we have the police as the answer to everything, and I mean, even 
when Jeremy Corbyn was the Labour leader, ostensibly the most progressive, most left Labour leader in, you know, I don't know how long, the arms race was still with the Tories in terms of how many tens of thousands more police are we going to have, right? No conversation about let's get rid of suspicion of stop and search or let's get rid of electroshock weapons or, you know, some relatively like anodyne non-reformist reforms that they could have snuck into the whole programme that civil liberties groups have called for for a long time. They weren't even up for that. I think hate crime legislation is the answer to so many things for people. So, yeah, you know, something terrible has happened. Yeah, let's make misogyny a hate crime. Let's make upskirting a hate crime, let's make transphobia a hate crime, like that is very much the frame of reference for a lot of progressive calls for, you know, for want of anything better. I think there's just a lack of skepticism about the state, which is going to lead us on to my next question. But I think we really saw it in the pandemic, you know, so I was at a civil liberties organisation making the arguments that, yes, clearly there is a massive public health emergency that needs public health measures. However, I'm really sceptical that the racist, violent, classist police should be the ones that implement that response, right? The left just didn't have much else to say. It took a long time for people to get to, oh, what if we paid people more so that they didn't have to go out to work and catch COVID? You know, it took quite a while for those more welfareist things to get proposed. So yeah, not even quite a faux volition <laughs> necessarily. And I suppose the other missing thing that I see in the UK is um, maybe an unwillingness to grapple with the fact that abolition is also about the remaking of our interpersonal relationships, right? That we're not going to abolish the police if we don't genuinely figure out how we're going to deal with the rapist in our community or deal with all these other kinds of harm. Like, we are genuinely going to have to figure that out together. And I think people are quite happy to get on board with the big programme of, yeah, we don't want prisons, we don't want police. And it's like, OK, then there's work that we need to do. There's stuff that needs to be there. And that I think people are still a little, they kind of think we can somehow bypass that maybe and we can't. But all of this really leads me to my question about the state and kind of how we relate to the state as abolitionists. Um, I was listening really recently to the great conversation between Harsha Walia and William Anderson and Dean Spade on this question of the state. And it's something that Luke and I grappled with and didn't settle when we were writing Against Borders. And I don't mean we didn't settle the question of should we have nation states, because that's an obvious no for us. But the question of what comes afterwards. And I guess we were thinking about, you know, how we organise ourselves around things like pandemics or climate catastrophe, things that clearly require cooperation between near and distant others and expertise and collectively developed strategies. So I'm interested in your thoughts on this, how we might be thinking about the state and, you know, while I have you, obviously, just what intercommunity relations might look like in a world without bordered nation states. Okay, this is a tough question, as you know, and, and a vital one. And let me advertise for those who might be interested that in May, May 5th and 6th of 2023, the small center that I have the pleasure to direct at the City University of New York will be holding a small conference on the question of the state. So what about the state? And it's because you know, everyone has an opinion, but it's kind of hard to sort of work through, you know, what do we mean? 
How do we mean it? What is this thing that we want or don't want? Why is it so frightening? Why does it seem necessary? And so forth. And I know I didn't listen to the the discussion that you just described that, that Harsha and Dean and William, I think it was, held recently. And I, I still have to go back and listen to it. And I think because I know, especially Dean, um, but also Harsha, and I know William's work, I think that they are absolutely serious in everything that they say. And I also think with equal and absolute seriousness that there are aspects of large-scale social welfare provisioning that I cannot imagine achieving without something that at the moment I need to call the state, but maybe we can just rename it and then not feel so bad about it. But that's a dodge that would never get us anywhere. Um, so I think, for example, of uh, one of my favorite things that Lenin ever said um, when he was asked how, this, how the revolution, the Bolshevik revolution, was going to sustain itself. And he replied, the Soviets plus electrification. So the Soviets, in this case, were the various self-organized and self-governing groupings that were spread throughout what was then still, you know, the remnants of the Russian Empire, but expanding beyond that, um, that, that came together under a whole lot of different urgencies and commitments. It's not like they were all, we are the productive workers in industry, forming ourselves into Soviets everywhere, all different kinds of people, which is what we see today. There are all different kinds of formations that people have uh, organized themselves into or kind of been compelled to become part of over time. And the Soviets give us some insight, I think, into the sort of modes of self-organization from the ground up that can possibly build and sustain going forward. And later I can talk about some examples of what I mean in greater detail so it doesn't sound like I'm just a romantic for what was going on 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. But then there's the electrification question. So electrification was a huge thing. And it's you know a huge thing that for Lenin then and for all of us now has everything to do with energy. Just as the Soviets have everything to do with energy, the human energy and ingenuity to make and keep making a world. So these two energies come together. What constitutes the um, infrastructural capacity for electrification or for water provision or for, you mentioned the, health, the pandemic, health care? By the way, that's an ambulance, not a cop. Good. I was going to say, dis disruption yeah. at new levels. They'll do anything. Yeah. yeah, my street is so busy and it's just a major thoroughfare for ambulances. There are several hospitals down the road. And I'm just sorry that so many people have to rush to them. Yeah. But um, so anyway, electrification, water, health, especially uh, preventive health care, uh, communication and transport. So these are, you know, sort of five categories where I imagine we need big things. And so the question is, how do we make the big thing possible and make it sustainable? 
This isn't anything that I imagine realizable through any kind of volunteerism. That is my view. And I cannot imagine having that view shaken. But does that mean that the, that the form of social and institutional support and maintenance of these big things will be something we call the state? And I think this is something we should debate out and try to imagine with all of our, our ingenuity. None of this necessitates something called a nation state. So you already said a big no, I'm with you, big no. But all of these big things require socializing costs. And if we socialize costs, that means that necessarily there's something that compels people to participate in that cost socialization. Does that compulsion have to be criminalized to be realized? I mean, these are questions to which I don't have answers, but I'm bringing them up because I'd like for people to spend as much time thinking, talking about these things explicitly as talking about our abhorrence of the form that we've come to experience the state as and its connection to organized violence, which I recognize. I also want to say just in passing, that while organized violence is so often institutionally an expression of states, um, it's not only expressions of states. And if we you know, pay close attention to the organization of communities, to how patriarchy and even paternalism works and so forth, we also get to organize violence as a problem to be addressed. So I don't imagine that there is this category of social life called community, which is more likely to be free of the repressive and excluding and violent forms of control that we associate with the state. And this is a debate I've been having with comrades here in the United States for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> and they, they must continue. I think they're really important debates. So, you know, again, these, these large-scale capacities, uh, these big things all require socializing costs. And an abolitionist, which is to say a small c communist says, yes, and the benefits must be universal. So there isn't a matter of, you only get something out if you've paid in. Mm -hmm. That transactional contribution or membership base way of thinking about social goods. That anything that is socially built is universally available to everyone who needs it. Needs clean water, needs healthcare, needs transport, needs to communicate, wants to turn the lights on. This then, I have more questions than answers still, raises questions about sovereignty and therefore the implication of borders when what we're saying, what you've written a book, you and Luke have written a book about, and Harsha has written a book about, and other people have written books about, which is the urgency of no borders as a, I almost want to say, a prerequisite for us to think about how we want to think about the world. Mm. So if we think no borders, then what happens to sovereignty when sovereignty suggests the capacity to say who's in and who's out? And I think that that is probably the central contradiction of the liberation future that we're all fighting for.
again, without having an answer to the question, thinking about it. Is sovereignty something that we can socially make and remake so that it is possible for people who have organized themselves in whatever configuration to say, here, we never poisoned this, and we will enforce that without, again, recourse to criminalization or exclusion. You know, you can be here, you just can't poison it. You can be here, you just can't raise your hand. You can be here, you just can't do all of these things. These are questions. And many of my comrades who have been fighting the long durée of colonial existence are, you know, very clear in, in their commitment to the invigoration of their sovereignty as the partial resolution to their colonial unfreedom that has lasted for centuries and centuries. So these are all questions, not answers, that I would love to hear people discuss a lot. Yep. I mean, it's, I'm reassured that you also don't have an answer, you know? <laughs> so I'd like to talk a bit about the role of NGOs and grassroots organizations in liberation movements. And, you know, I should emphasize, hold my hands up and say, up until a year ago, my paid work has been in the NGO sector for a decade, including leading an organization very much like the ACLU, but it's never been the sum total of my work and always as a means to an end. Anyway... In their book, Race to the Bottom, Ilyas Nagdi and Asfar Shafi write about how in the latter decades of the 20th century in the UK, what they call anti-racism from above became a kind of containment strategy for radical anti-racist organising, in part through state and philanthropic linked funding being used to divert organisers away from the grassroots. So... There's a really understandable scepticism here about certain organisational forms and people getting paid. And at the same time, we have people who are building new organisations where at least some people are getting paid. You know, we've got the Forefront Project and the Racial Justice Network and SOAS Detainee Support. And along with that, we have people radicalising older institutions with various degrees of success. So in your essay, In the Shadow of the Shadow State, you explore these dynamics in the US context. And what I find particularly interesting is how towards the end of that essay, you discuss a, you know, a number of different organizational forms from coffee table politics to radical subscriber radio. And I'm just interested, why do we have to be attentive to the forms that our organizing takes in your view? That's yet another wonderful question. I think that the answer to your question was uh, beautifully built into the question, so I'm, I'm going to repeat a little bit of it and then expand a bit. The topics or themes or urgencies that we name so well are all available for co-optation, to use a word we used earlier, whether the co-optation takes the form of volition or something else makes no difference. So. The question of the form of organization has everything to do with how we are making the world anew, whether, as you said so wisely, through new organizations or through invigorating already existing organizations with newer, refreshed dynamics. And the particular concern that I 
think I addressed in, in the shadow of the shadow state was the question of what makes an organization relatively autonomous in its ability to sustain itself into the future, but then how that relative autonomy, the form of its relative autonomy, shapes its commitment to or divergence from its missions and goals. So the sort of from above anti-racism, which is really emblematic of where the Fobolition in the States is coming from now, you know, takes the theme and then sets out a very particular agenda and then requires the people who have secured the funding to fulfill that agenda and more or less no other. And the fact that people need to get paid to pay the outrageous rents and the cost of living rises and so on and so forth makes it you know, fully understandable why any organization, whatever its original purpose and original means of funding itself, might turn to those with the deeper pockets to get more resources to do, in theory, more of what they were doing. So that, that was the question that I was trying to address in, in the shadow of the shadow state. But I also want to explain to the listeners what the shadow of the shadow state refers to. So the shadow state, um, as conceptualized by a former colleague of mine from many years ago, a woman called Jennifer Walsh, was uh, a way to think about the various kinds of organization, uh, generally in the quote-unquote volunteer sector or voluntary sector, that stepped up in the wake of or in the dismantling of the social welfare state to try to secure the ongoing provision of certain protections and opportunities. For me, the shadow of the shadow state are the various kinds of organizations, um, some legacy, some new, that are in the shadow of that shadow state that are have a much more militant agenda and yet uh, seem to be operating in tandem, sometimes in cooperation with the official shadow state, whether it's NGOs or, um, oh my goodness, Syria has gongos, government-organized non-governmental organizations, or what have you else, right? <laughs> um, uh, improvement district, you name it. There, there are all of these forms that the uh, sloughing off of state provision has caused to come into being, and many of the forms are, you know, revitalizations of older institutional structures that people have put into motion, and in other cases, again, they're new things. So thinking about the form only gets us halfway to the goal of thinking about how our organizations should work. And the essential category here for our analysis, and where I'll try to close this out for our fantastic discussion today, is the combination of effective control over mission and how that effective control does or does not uh, bring democratic participation into its realization, right? Democratic participation. So 
many different kinds of examples. Uh, one of my uh, colleague comrades is an amazingly great union organizer. Her name is Jane McAlevey. And she's been doing these massive trainings that are free. They're organized through Zoom, so people have to have that capacity. But if they have it, people from all over the world can participate. The next round will be in February, and I'll send you information. You can share it with your listeners. And these, these trainings are available 12 languages. When people take do the trainings, they have to come in a group of at least 10 people. And what Jane and her comrades do is what she calls whole worker training. So her emphasis has been on unions, but she has people from social movements all over the world participating as well, because the urgencies are the same in terms of the goal of organizing, but also the necessity for participation to be ground up. So mm -hmm. that that word people like to bandy around, transparency, actually has embodied meaning. You know, actually has the rehearsal of life, which is what I think abolition is, rather than the recitation of here's the problem and here's how we're going to solve it. So that's you know one one case among many. Um, Jane told me that last edition of her course. Uh, which is sponsored, by the way, by the Rosa Luxemburg Stiftung in Berlin. Last course, she had like several hundred people from Morocco who came with, as she described it, very high levels of you know, theoretical, analytical uh, sophistication, but not a whole lot of on-the-ground, ground-up organizing experience. And then in other cases, she'll have people who have organized on the ground brilliantly, but not necessarily had the time to reflect on what the theoretical issues are that shape their organizing, which is to say that help people decide what comes next. Like the whole point of theory, help us to decide what comes next. Another example is uh, a place that became quite fabled a little more than a decade ago, which is El Alto, you know, outside of La Paz in Bolivia where you know, occupations and general assemblies kind of threw up a barrier to then Bolivia's participation in the neoliberalizing world, but also was building from the ground up in the context of a pretty large community, the possibilities for figuring out how people's everyday lives, work lives, social lives, family lives could be different. I just came from South Africa a few days ago, where I spent a lot of time meeting with, talking with, learning from the so-called Shack Dwellers movement, uh, Abakhali. And again, in, in those contexts of land occupation or building occupation and you know, figuring out how to make a life while demanding the services of the sort that I was describing earlier, that at the moment only the state is able to provide, has uh, produced extremely vibrant as well as remarkably vulnerable, vulnerable, vulnerable communities. So all of these examples make us able to think across a range of different organizational forms and sizes to kind of understand 
how the ability for these organizations to sustain themselves combines the energy of their interpersonal interaction as well as the kinds of resources, uh, money and other resources that they can put together to promote change, to organize in the political field, and to do the work that they have to do. And so to kind of sum it up, all of the things that we've been talking about today in this great conversation have been examples of sustained creative aggression or examples of what we need to think about and think through in order to enhance the possibilities for sustained creative aggression, which is what I think the protagonists of history must be up to today. So that's it. Absolutely. That's fantastic. Thank you for listening to the sixth and final episode of the Locating Legacy series on abolition in the UK with Ruth Wilson Gilmore. The Locating Legacies series was brought to you by the Stuart Hall Foundation and Pluto Press with funding from Arts Council England. Make sure to follow Pluto Press on socials. And if you've enjoyed this series, then you can like and subscribe to the Radicals in Conversation podcast if you'd like to hear more. We'd also encourage you to sign up to the Stuart Hall Foundation's newsletter so that you can be the first to know about their latest events, residencies, scholarship opportunities and commissions. Thank you all so much for tuning in, for sharing news of the series with your networks and for your support of this project. On behalf of Pluto Press and the Stuart Hall Foundation, I'd also like to extend an enormous special thank you to all of the contributors for making the time to speak with us, for their critical interventions and for generously sharing their hopes and radical observations with us. 